Hey, what's going on? Greetings and good day, and welcome to the iTunes version of Birds All Day. As you know, the full edition of Birds All Day is available only to athletic subscribers, so if you aren't one of them, I cannot recommend highly enough you go to theathletic.com slash birdsallday, get that 40% discount if it's not, tell them you want it, and uh, and sign up to get the full show, but we are happy to be here on iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, I guess I should say, on Spotify, on everywhere that you and people like you collect your podcasts. Uh, Stoughton, what have they missed? Uh, old, re- old Reliable? Old Reliable. So Excuse what me. have they missed Thank so you. far here in 2019? Oh, they missed a ton of great stuff. Uh, you know, we had uh, Dan Schulman. We had Ross Atkins. We had Alex Anthopoulos on, which is just, you know, insane considering <laughs> some of the, the stuff that uh, uh, some of the things we were doing in the Alex Anthopoulos era. Uh, and you know, yeah, we've had a, a, a lot of lovely banter. I feel about the uh, the Toronto Blue Jays and the ups and downs, uh, mostly downs of uh, of this season, uh, and about the light at the end of the tunnel that we pray is actually real and not a mirage. I'm hoping it's a train. Sometimes when I'm watching the <laughs> Toronto Blue Jays, but so that is what you've missed if you are not have not been an athletic subscriber. So even if you aren't. We're very excited to uh, be giving you chunks, portions, highlights of the show. How about this week? You listen to Stoughton and I talk to Alex Byer of the Boston Globe about his new book, Homegrown, all about the uh, Red Sox rise and and the the ascension of the woe begotten and, and hard done by. It's it's a really rag a real rags to riches. But it's a, it's a bit yeah. of a riches to riches story. But Alex is a great guest, and and there's so much to learn from what and how the Red Sox achieved the success that they've had recently, in particular the 2018 World Series. So we're happy to talk to Alex Spire. I hope we hope you enjoy it, and we hope again you head over to theathletic.com/slash/birdsallday, sign up, get the full show. You can hear Stoughton and I talk about all things Blue Jays. But for now, until that time, enjoy our chat with Alex Spire. All right, as mentioned before, it is now our pleasure to be joined by the author of Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up. You know him from the Boston Globe. His name is Alex Byer. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Based on the news out of the uh, Red Sox world this this last week, uh, might we see maybe a prologue on the paperback edition of Homegrown? Well, I, I think that it's it's safe to guess that the book might need uh, might need a bit of an addition uh, to reflect the events of 2019, which have been obviously extremely different from 2018. But um, hopefully, hopefully the book lends some context to what is happening in 2019. Namely, you know, there are a couple of things that are in play. First is that um, a spectacular culture that features players performing at the top level of their abilities across the board is really difficult to replicate. And uh, we saw that with the Red Sox from 2013, which was a World Series, a kind of charmed World Series championship season, to 2014, which was a last place finish. Uh, we've seen it in other instances where um, culture in one year from the next, if, if there are false notes that are in it, then uh, they tend to become quickly amplified and make things very difficult on the field. Um, secondly, you know, it, it's Boston and regime change at a pretty quick pace if, uh, if there is something that is uh, an impediment to success. Um, there are extremely high demands. Ben Charrington had many years ago laid out this kind of three-phase groundwork for building a Red Sox, you know, a Red Sox long-term sustainable champion uh, when he took over as the general manager in 2011. And kind of his hope was that by about 2016 or so, the team would be... 
uh, and that was indeed the case. But Ben Charrington had been fired before uh, before the Red Sox got to embark upon that era of uh, of the team building phase that Ben Charrington had envisioned. Uh, because in 2014 and 2015, in this kind of interim phase. They had finished last place in back-to-back years, so um, it's not a place that's very uh, that's that's very um, conducive to uh, to long-term five-year plans. Uh, but uh, but it's it's one that does um, tend to lend itself to change and, and to uncertainty on a year-to-year basis. So it sounds like um, you know, based on what you've written and and what some of the other people around the team are writing, that you, you know, use the word culture, and I think it's a, it's an important one because. To map out, uh, you know, kind of a three-phase plan as Ben Sherrington seems to do, uh, it's kind of what we've seen happen here in Toronto as well, which is sort of the modernization of the team, uh, you know, which is another way of saying the kind of corporatization of the team, putting, you know, kind of um, structures and systems in place such that decisions are made with a bit more transparency and a bit more of a, a all you know, more hands sort of put getting into the into the work and everyone kind of collaborating to to achieve and to to make hopefully this ex, uh, successful decisions. So the one maybe one of the reasons that Dave Dombrowski, who obviously no one can argue with the results, the 2018 Red Sox, as you said, you know, high level players playing at the highest imaginable level, um, were one of the best teams anybody ever saw. But, you know, I feel like on the surface, a lot of the talk was about uh, dollars and salary and money committed to Chris Sale and, and Nate Evaldi. and But then I think some of the other stuff that was underneath was more about the kind of breakdown in those systems and the, the inability for Dabrowski, more of an old style, maybe kind of gunslinger type, to to work within the, the construct that was that was built and that had proved to be successful. Is, is that sort of make sense to you from the outside? Someone who has been, obviously wrote this book and, and looked at the Red Sox in more of a, system, a systemic way, uh, that Dombrowski was maybe failing in that regard? Well, I think that uh, I think that Dombrowski was brought in to kind of capitalize on the very on, on the very good systems and processes that were in place that had a really impressive core of young major league talent either in the big leagues or on the cusp of reaching the big leagues. And uh, it was going to be the Red Sox were entering a period in which they were going to need to supplement that core. They had the financial flexibility because that young core was cheap. Um, to be able to make a lot of very bold moves, and because that young core was plentiful, to make trades in order to uh, in order to complement them while still building a very complete roster. Um, at this point, in uh, at this point, it's a it's a different roster. It's it's a roster that's no longer cheap, but is instead expensive. The players who were uh, who were uh, who weren't even making, who were making the big league minimum uh, and were not yet arbitration eligible at the start of Dombrowski's tenure uh, are now being, the Red Sox now have to make decisions about whether or not to sign them to long-term deals. And in a couple of cases, they've already made very aggressive decisions um, and some of those have been rash enough that it's like it, they were they were just kind of like taking the deals that were there um, and uh, that they were there for the taking. OK, oh, Nate Evaldi will take the 17 million dollars a year for. OK, we should do that because there are no guarantees that other guys are going to be willing to take that money or we need to sign Chris Sale right now before the start of the season, because if we wait, then there's a chance that, you know, we'll be we'll be out, outbid at the end of the year. Um, there was just an immediacy and kind of a very linear structure to how Dave Dombrowski was making moves that was in response to kind of immediate necessity. And that isn't necessarily, you know, it, it wasn't, it, 
ultimately uh, a bill came due for a lot of bets that had been made over the course of a period of time. Now, that's not to say that David Dombrowski wasn't the right person for the Red Sox over these last uh, over these last four years, because there are a lot of people around the Red Sox who think that Ben Charrington was the right person to be in charge of them when he was, who thinks that Dave, who think that Dave Dombrowski was the right person to assume the reins from him, and who now think that it's it's time for a different kind of uh, a different kind of leader. But I do think that. In the case of Dombrowski, uh, the model that he had shown himself successful in was not going to be was not going to be useful for the coming phase that the Red Sox face when they not only need to add, but when they're going to need to start subtracting from this really, really impressive core that they built together for a championship caliber run. I feel like the, the the luxury tax is sort of like hovering over all of this, where a team that is has been as successful as the Red Sox, who have won what I believe 2004, 7, 13, 18, four World Series championships in the last 15 years, which is uh, pretty good. And has also just built the brand up and has developed this the uh, their ballpark into a more of a revenue generator. Um, if anyone should be able to, you know, justify keeping a guy like Chris Sale, who you paid a steep price to get, he performed at or above expectations in his first year, um, and then is, is has shown himself to be durable, you know, despite all of the things working against him. If you can't, what I'm saying, I guess, from a, from a, maybe a fan perspective, uh, is the luxury tax sort of the, the the unspoken, the silent partner in all this that's sort of forcing their hand in terms of. Yeah, you can't afford to keep Mookie because the the team doesn't want to go into and pay those penalties. You, you the the sale you know decision looks maybe a little bit as you said linear, a little simplistic. But I mean, from the outside, th- those moves I, I get. I, I I wish that I wish that the team that I support was in a position to make those same kind of boneheaded decisions to sign Chris Sale for a long time. Like, oh, that's you're sucks. You're stuck with Chris Sale of all people. Like. I mean, I just—it just feels like, like um, it's almost like the unspoken thing. Where, where I mean, everyone's got a bill, everyone's got a, 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 a budget, but the Red Sox are almost artificially held back from from truly captive, uh, capitalizing on this just truly impressive core because they were as good as anyone, any team I've ever seen last year, and now it's it's looking at dollars are going to tear them apart, which I don't know feels like a shame. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. And I tend to, you know, I, I tend to get both sides of the argument, right? As a fan, you're like, well, guess what? Like Major League Baseball owners are awash in cash. And you look at the, you know, the revenues that are flowing into the game and it's a franchise. And yeah, go ahead, sign Chris Sale and re-sign every one of these guys. There's never a reason why, uh, there's never a reason why you shouldn't be able to re-sign them. And on, a, on the surface, that's, you know, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that that's true. Uh, on the <laughs> other hand, you think about the logic for a major league franchise or, or specifically an owner where uh, the Red Sox have spent their way into, you know, into uh, into the, the second year of luxury tax penalties where they're almost going up to the third tier of luxury tax uh, threshold. So they're at a place where if they were now that they have re-signed Chris Sale and Nate Evaldi, if they were to bring back J.D. Martinez and then try to sign Mookie Betts, well, they're not just re-signing Mookie Betts for, let's say, 35 to $40 million a year, which is kind of the going rate for elite extensions mm-hmm. for guys like Nolan Arenado uh, and, you know, that, that ilk, like the Arenado to Trout class of player, um, but you're paying a 90, like a 95% tax on that money. So Mookie Betts would be costing you almost $70 million a year. Um, that's a pretty hard one for, an, that's a harder one for an owner to justify, I think, or for a team to justify in its mind than kind of the surface level, like, 
you should be able to afford this. The answer is yes, and you're absolutely, but you're absolutely right. The, the repeated luxury tax penalties, the increase, especially if you keep pushing past that third tier or flirting with it, becomes so extreme that it absolutely acts as a, uh, as a, as a kind of, uh, not a firewall, because the Red Sox surpassed that last year, but you know, they're, it's, you're awfully hard pressed to find a sports owner in just about any sport who's going to want to pay 70 million bucks a year to any one player on their team. So I guess maybe the last question then. So the the inevitable is going to come up. So J.D. Martinez may, in, in, in his own way, do the Red Sox a favor and opt out and, and head back into free agency. But is the Red Sox relationship with their fan base, is, is the their, their ability, their demonstrated, repeated demonstrated ability to, to win, to retool, to sort of acquire that talent, If are they the, probably the only team capable of, I don't know, selling a Mookie Betts trade to their fans and to 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 the people of of New England because it it just seems like one of those things that you'll you'll always it'll always has the potential to always haunt them and even, haunt them in terms of on the field and haunt them in terms of like I can't believe we let this player that we had in our in the mix I can't believe we uh, we traded him away. Yeah, what a brutal thing for an incoming general manager or head of baseball operations to have as potentially their first order of business. Okay, you figure out Mookie and, uh, you know, maybe you can trade him for something that <laughs> that, that surpasses a fourth round draft pick in value uh, if that's the direction you decide to go in. Like, good luck with that. No, no, the Red Sox fans, uh, the Red Sox would not have the, uh, the goodwill in their fan base to be able to sell that until they start winning. Um, I, in fact, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because attendance has been relatively poor. It uh, has been declining throughout the course of this season. Games aren't selling out at Fenway Park. Even There, there was no halo surrounding the 2018 championship team. Play, fans are no-shows or they're leaving games early. And so you have this, like, you have this appearance of kind of these empty days at Fenway uh, coming off of this great team. So they're not able to sell the team with Mookie Betts right now. So I, mm. I guess, you know, the, the proof is going to be in the tasting of the pudding uh, where, you know, nothing is going to, you know, the only way that you're able to justify having traded Mookie Betts is by winning without Mookie Betts, if it comes to that. Now, I, I thoroughly anticipate that the Red Sox are going to make a hell of a run at trying to keep, uh, trying to retain Mookie Betts because you have to. Like, you have to. He's that mm-hmm. good. He is a generational talent. He's as, uh, I've had... I'll I'll be very candid in saying like I've had a lot of fun covering his career from the lowest levels of the minor leagues, which is one of the things that's you know that I visit in the books like in the book. It's crazy that he's had this career arc that he has, and it remains a crazy career arc. But um, you know it's it is a it is a really difficult thing for a franchise uh, to you know to convince its followers that trading their best player and maybe the best player that they in decades is a great idea. So let's get into sort of the the meat of the book and 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 how this is all related to that, which is to say that how did the Red Sox develop? Like how you know, obviously it's it's easy to the, the team has the systems in place. Mookie Betts himself became a generational talent. He's the he's the guy on the field doing the things. But I mean, this is a guy that I remember coming up playing second base at at points as a 
as a as a minor leaguer. So so what is it about about the Red Sox player development that has that allowed them to get here? Is it identifying talent? Is it uh, does, like taking that talent to the next level? Is it you know knowing uh, you know having a sort of is there a, is there a Red Sox way sort of like the Cardinal way that that has allowed them to build this incredible core that now they've all got rings and are too rich to play for the Red Sox? Well, I guess I guess a couple of things here. First is that, you know, first and foremost is that like Mookie Betts is an incredible talent and, you know, mm. he, the the foremost credit goes to him. Anyone who's able to make that transition that you alluded to from second base to the outfield and in a matter of weeks be a starting big league outfielder is a pretty pretty special individual. Um but there, there are a couple of there have been a couple of key pivot points that I think are somewhat revealing. With let's just stick with the Mookie Betts example. So in 2011, the Red Sox uh, in 2011, it was kind of the last the last whack at uh, at being able to spend as much money as you wanted to on any given draft. And the Red Sox the Red Sox understood that any opportunity you have to spend on amateur talent is an opportunity worth taking. So they they were fully planning money in the draft that year. And in particular, being aggressive with signing, uh, with signing guys well over slot recommendations, um, who were in the you know in the third rounds and later, um, in order to try to get guys with major upside uh, that they might not be able to have a shot at in future years. So they were you know that that commitment to spending big on amateur talent was a you know that that was a hallmark of where the Red Sox were, maybe more so than most teams in the industry at that point. Um, so that put them in a position to be aggressive entering the 2011 draft. Then they also expanded their cross-checker pool. So they had, uh, for preparing for the international draft, or rather for the for the amateur draft that year, um, they they really wanted to get a lot of looks at guys who, who were these upside plays, high schoolers who might fall off the radar of other teams, but who had a chance to become something. And so they sent in, whereas most teams didn't even see Mookie Betts as a high school senior in, in Tennessee. And, you know, there were a couple of teams who liked them, who liked him, but maybe they sent in their area guy and one cross checker. The Red Sox sent in kind of a fleet of guys, maybe a half dozen guys to see Mookie Betts in his, in his senior year in order to gain conviction that this is a guy who we really, really want and believe in. So um, there was that commitment to, to spend. There was a commitment to scout him heavily, which in turn led to conviction. One of those guys who cross checked him, Sitting in the draft room and saying, "Well, you know, his this particular skill that he has of being able to hit the ball hard as a little guy at this stage of his life as a teenager uh, to the opposite field reminds me of kind of like something that Jeter was doing at a similar age, and that made a lot of people whoa take notice in the draft room, and so." Put him, moved him into a position on the board where they were pretty sure they were going to get him and moved the organization to a place where they were pretty sure they were going to spend what it took to land him. So that, that's, that's a kind of starting point of the commitment that was necessary. And then along the way, uh, Mookie Betts was ready to uh, was ready to quit at one point because he was struggling so much in his first year of full season professional baseball in Greenville in 2013. He was hitting like 150. He was coming off of a 2012 season in which he hadn't hit a single home run and basically wasn't even getting a ball to the warning track. And so uh, he was he was really down on himself, even though you know the batted ball data on him was was pretty good he was hitting a lot of you know lining out a lot of lineouts good walk to strikeout ratio but he was he was he was talking to teams about playing college hoops at that point and quitting baseball and he had kind of an intervention from a coach 
UL Washington, who you might remember from the Royals with a toothpick in his mouth. Uh, and, uh, you know, back in the 80s, uh, maybe you don't remember him, maybe I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but UL Washington worked with him to get this really exaggerated leg kick, this almost pitcher's stride uh, towards, you know, towards the pitcher um, to get it under control in a way that like this offseason workout program that he had followed in order to gain strength so that he could try to hit a ball out in order to be able to apply that into a swing. And after taking this kind of couple of days off in Greenville, working with UL Washington in the cage, he all of a sudden came back as a player who was who, who went on this rocket ship ride to being one of the best prospects in minor league baseball. So that was another critical element. And then finally, uh, Mookie Betts is really interesting because he had a miserable time trying to make the transition to the big leagues in 2014. Um, the He was not well received by veterans there who are in, extremely hard on certain kind of innocent behaviors like take a nap on the couch after showing up for early batting practice on a road trip. And like when the veteran showed in on a late bus and found the rookie sleeping on a couch, even though he had been working while they had been sitting in the hotel room, they crushed mm -hmm. him. And it was, it was a uh, transition to the big leagues for Mookie Betts, one that probably hindered his performance a little bit as a rookie. Um, the Red Sox in Ben Sherrington was the GM at the time, took stock of what was going on and wondered, how did we get to a place where Mookie Betts is is kind of walking around on eggshells and really uncomfortable in the big leagues to the point where he was happy to be optioned down to AAA. Um, so they viewed that as an opportunity for the organization to think about what it was doing in aiding uh, players' transitions from the minors to the big leagues in a way that made them better uh, at doing just that going forward in future years. So um, that that's kind of, I guess, that's that's kind of the Mookie Betts case story for uh, for the book and and what, you know, and, and kind of the Red Sox, what the Red Sox were and were not doing in player development. Um, they do have a quote-unquote Red Sox way, just as there's a Cubs way and a Cardinals mm -hmm. way. And I imagine I would be awfully surprised if there wasn't a Blue Jays way uh, that uh, that Ben Charrington had helped to, uh, to put together. Um, but, uh, you know, it's one thing to kind of create such a structure on paper and a very different one to kind of figure out along the way all the different mechanisms that are necessary to make it work in order to produce a, a great team. I guess that's that's the, the my follow-up is that you've almost gotten almost all the way there, which is, is this something that's portable? Can can Ben Sherrington recreate that? You know, Ben Sherrington, of course, is, is uh, here on the, the Blue Jay staff. I, don't, I can't remember his exact title, but um, is that something that can be re recreated? Or what are those key elements that that other teams are going to are that should or could try to replicate within their own uh, organization? The element, I, I think it's it's more than the elements. I think that it's it's the overall commitment to kind of a holistic approach to, you know, to not just individual player development, but to team development that is portable, right? That, that has to exist for any team that wants to get the most out of its players' abilities. Um, and, you know, and aligning individual talent with a culture that reinforces those, uh, the commitment to do so, the recognition of the necessity of doing so, uh, the understanding that there's not an endpoint that you know player development is not a fixed thing that it changes over time that the demands of it change over time that the opportunities to help players change over time. Um, if there's a restlessness with regards to the questions that surround player development, then there is the potential for a very good model that can help to get a lot out of the players. Um, 
again, it requires the commitment of an entire organization, and it requires a hell of a lot of patience because, you know, that that 2011 draft that Mookie Betts was part of, he was one of, a, that, was, that was kind of like a, a big bang uh, for the Red Sox organization, where in mm-hmm. one day they got Matt Barnes, they got Jackie Bradley Jr., they got Mookie Betts, um, all, all at the signing deadline in 2011, um, among other players who ended up being, uh, you know, big leaguers of varying quality. Um, but it required seven years to get the most out of them. So uh, there. So in addition to that kind of holistic approach that needs to be uh, that needs to underlie what an organization is doing, there also has to be an understanding that um, the answers aren't going to come easily. Right. Like there are there, there are things that you can do along the way that can expedite, uh, perhaps marginally, the speed with which players get to their to get to their fullest talents. But uh, ultimately, you know, ultimately, the, the players are still going to be the ones dictating when they're performing at their peaks. And getting that alignment is a pretty remarkable thing that does require a wholesale commitment, but also requires a hell of a lot of luck. I guess maybe the, the probably not an even million dollar question, it's a, it's a lot bigger than that, but is this kind of system, is it good? Is it enough? Would the Red Sox? Would we be here talking about the Red Sox? And and would would the cover of your book uh, showcase a team that won 108 regular season games? Would they have gotten there or close to it without um, Dombrowski's sort of old school willingness to embrace risk? Uh, you know, it's here in Toronto we see a, a team who the, the the players are not at a point now where the club is willing to take on risk it's very risk adverse it's giving as much runway allowing for you know hoping i think maybe then rather than allowing for the player development system to to uh to to, to take some of the glut of outfielders for example they've gotten but you know what i'm trying to say or the question i asked at the beginning would they have done it without a guy like Dombrowski willing to take the risk of, of moving, you know, Juan Mancato and taking on the big tall guy with all the pointy elbows and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, is, is it possible that if, if, you know, as you said at the beginning, Ben Sherrington was the guy to do it at that time. Um, is part of that is the ability, the willingness to embrace risk. Is that sort of the missing element maybe for a lot of teams? There, there is a pivot point for every team that tries to build around a homegrown core where they have to decide that, okay, it, it's on. You know, like, it's time to flip the switch and it's time to start using assets, uh, concentrating some assets in right now. And, you know, I, Ben Sherrington was actually arriving at that point. At the time that he mm-hmm. was fired, he, was, he had kind of laid the groundwork at the trade deadline in 2015 for trying to figure out, okay, like, what, how am I going to build a pitching staff that has a true front of the rotation presence. And he thought at that time, and based on his conversations with ownership, that this was the constraint that he faced. He thought he was going to have to trade for that. And that likely meant (laughs) dealing from their really impressive core of talent, uh, that they were going to have to make a trade for an ace in that off season after the 2015 season. Um, But he recognized that there was switch and to go from, you know, there was going to have to be some, there were, there were going to have to be some, some decisions that involved risk. So, Yes, you always, if there, there always comes a point for an organization, at least in my experience, 
all of these homegrown organizations that we've seen winning in recent years, you know, you think about the Royals kind of being willing to uh, to trade Will Myers for James Shields at the start, and then, you know, continuing with trading for Johnny Cueto and making other win-now moves. The Astros making the move for, uh, for Justin Verlander, among others. Uh, you know, the Cubs obviously putting an awful lot of chips in on Araldus Chapman while signing a ton of long-term deals. Um, there comes a time when the decision, the types of decisions have to change. Organizations don't just kind of follow a linear path to from you know okay, minor league core of impressive prospects something like something like was existed in in New Hampshire and in twenty eighteen for you guys right mm-hmm. um, you know you you can't just say okay that's going to organically emerge as a champion by let's say twenty twenty four there's going to have to be a point if that group develops and there there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff we've already seen in the big league level from that group of, of young Jays prospects, there's going to have to come a point where the organization, you know, starts thinking about, okay, how do we how do we leverage every asset that we have, whether it's, you know, whether it's money, whether it's prospects, and concentrate, you know, con- concentrate them in a way that supplements the roster. It, determine that the roster is championship caliber and then supplement it in a way that reflects that. The, the other team that comes to mind when you talk when we talk about this is the Rays. The Rays are, are have are no uh, they're so risk adverse that they'll they have never taken on um, anything that remote that remotely uh, approaches what even the Royals what the Royals are making the Rays look bad here yeah. as we as we look back in time and, and I think that's a it's it's a good reminder um, for for Blue Jays fans those who are in favor and against some of the the decisions that the front office has made that that time will come and and uh, maybe the the Rays are good at identifying cheap talent and, and getting good performances out of some guys but they've never they've never really made that push and it's it's reflected in their uh, their their record over the last 10 years or so well they've flirted with it you know they've they've they're close to that point like they were thinking about getting in on the Kimbrel market this year and they've mm-hmm. they've started thinking about doing a bit more big game hunting in Tampa Bay within the financial constraints that they face, which are far more extreme than those of, of most other teams. Um, we'll, we'll see. Maybe once, maybe once they get to Montreal for half the year, then things will look different. <laughs> uh, so you got anything you want to ask them about Ajax or, or some, it's very similar, right? It's the, it's the player development system. It's the, it's the Academy. Sorry, say that again, please. Oh, no, sorry. I was just talking to, Oh, there we go. Well, I'm ready. I'm ready. I, uh, well, no, Liverpool, actually, you know is, what? Liverpool Bef- was really good this year. Liverpool was really good this year. That, actually, that, that reminds me. So uh, this week, um, uh, Travis Sochik for 538 wrote about the push or the, the idea of maybe eliminating my, some of the minor league uh, teams and, uh, and going to more of an academy style where the players are all in there. They're learning the, the Red Sox way, the Barcelona way, whatever it is from the start. Do you think that that's something that may, that, that is, a, is a natural extension of this? Or, or is that just something that's maybe too extreme to, to work and, and to, you know, like would there be a Mookie Betts' success if he wasn't out there struggling and playing and, and facing the actual day-to-day uh, 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 challenges of, of like getting on base, even if he's pl- uh, playing at uh, whatever high A, uh, 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 Wilmington, Wilmington. I I, I believe that Greenville, there's probably sorry. going to be a push at some point for more academies uh, for mm-hmm. big for teams in part because that would wouldn't that be a nice way of at least resolving some of the whole like minor league financial ridiculousness where 
guys are underpaid and don't have the support network. Like they have to pay so much for their off-season training to be able to compete. I, I, it makes all the sense in the world for a team to create a year-round includes an academy setting. But I think mm-hmm. that the fundamental importance of games will remain enormous. I, I don't think that you can. Uh, I, I, I think that you find player development happens on the field in games. Um, It happens to a certain degree inside of like, inside of the quote unquote test tubes of, you know, whatever showcases or, you know, if you ever scout showcases and just watch guys in these wonderful home run derbies and see a Mm -hmm. see a high school student hitting a ball 450 feet. Well, that's, that's really nice. But what happens when, you know, when a left-hander, when a soft tossing left-hander carves him up with, you know, with three straight pitches that are, all varying speeds to different parts of the zone. Like I, I, I still mm-hmm. think that there's something um, that is fundamentally important about. So I think that you know I, I think that the pure academy development setting is going to be inadequate, particularly if you're trying to develop guys who are going to be able to efficiently transition to the big leagues. They have to have experienced competition and failure in competition. Uh, and figure it out in order to be able to apply those lessons to the big leagues. All right. The book is Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up. His name is Alex Byer. You can follow him on Twitter, at Alex Byer. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. It is my absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Alex Byer for joining us on Birds All Day. And thanks to you for listening to the Outside the Paywall version of the podcast. What you missed this week, you missed Stoughton and I talking about Randall Gritchick, talking about the Randall Gritchick contract, trying to find another way to look at it. We talked about uh, Trent Thornton finding a new weapon, becoming a real big leaguer, kind of fighting his way through the struggles of, of taking the mound 30 times and having everybody know exactly what you've got. Uh, and we talked a lot about, um, we talked a little bit about the Red Sox and we talked about, uh, you know, is the Blue Jays' brain trust that's in place now, are they the ones to take the team to the next level based on what we've seen and how risk-adverse they are? So if you want to hear Stoughton and I talk about all that, again, as I said at the beginning, head over to The Athletic, sign up, get the full show, and you can hear all that and so much more on this and all future episodes of Birds All Day.